Oh Lord God, we do thank you very much indeed for this opportunity this morning to consider your word. And Lord, I do pray that you would uh, be with me this morning and help me to teach your word clearly and in the power of your spirit. And Father, please would you be at work in all of us. Lord, uh, maybe some of us need to be encouraged. Maybe some of us need to be challenged and rebuked. Maybe some of us need to come to Christ for the first time. Lord, we pray that whatever needs to happen this morning, you will do it. And we pray that you will draw people to yourself. And help us all, we pray. Meet with us all, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So in our studies in uh, Genesis, in the early chapters of the book of Genesis, we come this morning to the genealogy that is here in chapter 5. What is a genealogy? It's a list of different people who, who you know, one person has a son who then goes, that son then has another son, that son has another son, and so on and so forth. Now, we might think that the list, the genealogies in the Bible are just a list of names that don't really mean anything to us. And we might perhaps be tempted when we're reading through the Bible on our own or when we're preaching to sort of skip over them uh, and, and go to another story. But the genealogies are very important because they show us that the Bible is a historical book. And they also show us how key events, key stories, are tied together. Very often also, the genealogies contain snippets of information about different people and different events. And these snippets can be very instructive for us. They can tell us about God, and they can also tell us about how God would have us to live as his people. And so we're going to be thinking about this genealogy this morning. And there are five things that I want to draw out from this genealogy. And the first is this, which is something which we've seen already, but is repeated in this genealogy, at the beginning of this genealogy, is that man is created by God in God's image. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 to start off with. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now, I say this is a reiteration of what uh, was said in chapter 1 about how God made man in his own image. And, uh, of course, this is inspired scripture. And it's as if God is saying to us through Moses... Just in case you didn't hear it the first time, 
man is created by me. And man, God is saying, man is created in my image. So, things to note from this. First of all, God created man. We are not here as a result of blind chance. The Bible says that God made us. Note also that man is made in the image of God. In the likeness of God. That does not mean that we are made physically like God because God does not have a physical body like us. But we are made like God in terms of having personality. Having the reason, having the ability to think, to reason, to plan, to communicate. I would argue also to feel emotion, that that is part of what it means to be in the image of God. And also that when man was first made, he was made like God morally. When you looked at Adam, you'd see perfection. You looked at the way that he treated his wife, you'd see perfection. You'd see the way in which he related with God himself. He was perfect. He was like God. If you looked at Adam and his behavior, you would see God. And notice also that this passage reiterates as well that God made man male and female. Both men and women are made in the image of God. It's not that men are made in the image of God and then women are sort of secondary creatures. Not at all. Yes, Eve was taken from the mechanism God used was to take Eve uh, from, from, make Eve out of Adam, take, take a bone from, from Adam and, and form, uh, form Eve from that bone of Adam. But Eve was equally in the image of God. And we see from this that women have tremendous value just as men have tremendous value. There is not, you know, uh, you know, one class of human, which is man, and a second class of human, which is woman. Yes, there are differences of role between men and women, and men are to lead in the church and in the family, but women are equally valuable to men as made in the image of God. And, Paul, and Peter talks about how women are co-heirs with men of the gracious gift of life that God has given to his people. Now, I think it is significant that this, that speaking about man made in the image of God, this is repeated after the flood. So, excuse me, after the fall, after Adam and Eve fell into sin. And, uh, Yes, the image of God was marred when Adam and Eve sinned. But they still retained something of the image of God. And uh, in, case we should, um, in case we should 
be not clear about that. If we look at chapter 9 and verse 6, just a couple of pages over, God said uh, to Noah, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And Paul also speaks about, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, he talks about man made in the image of God. And James also, in James 3, 9, also speaks about how, how our fellow human beings are made in God's likeness. So what application can we take from this? This reiteration, this repeat of the fact that man is made in the image of God. Well, clearly, we should love all other human beings. Yes, of course, we have a special love for our own family, those of us who are married, those of us who have got children. Yes, of course, we have a special love for those who are our spiritual brothers and sisters. As Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. But there should be a love shown to all people simply because they're made in the image of God. Whether that, whether that person is a murderer or a rapist, a paedophile, whether that person is old or whether that person is young, whether that person is not yet born, whether that person is severely handicapped, each one should be shown great love because each one is made in the image of God. Uh, James says, doesn't he, in that... Um, verse that I mentioned just now, James 3, verse 9. He says, uh, With our mouths we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That shouldn't happen. We shouldn't say, oh, I, I worship God, but then at the same time we curse our fellow human being and are horrible and rude to our fellow human being. Now, this is why a Christian uh, cannot uh, sanction uh, abortion. Because that little tiny baby in the mother's womb is made in the image of God. That's why, for, you know, for all the people who are saying, oh, we need to have assisted suicide. We need, to, we need to help people who are in pain to die off. It sounds very noble and so kind, but actually, it's murder. Because you're killing somebody who is made in the image of God. And that's why we should put away all hatred and malice uh, towards others. So that's the first thing then, that uh, man is made in the image of God. Now the second thing I want to draw out from this genealogy is, coming back to Genesis chapter 5, is that we who are the descendants of Adam have inherited two things from Adam. We've inherited 
the likeness of God, but we've also inherited his sinful nature. Now we see in verse 3, Adam lived when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. After his image, he, and he named him Seth. So here is a, a, Adam's offspring. And he's in the image of Adam. Just as Adam was made in the image of God, so Seth is, is born in the image of Adam. Now this cuts both ways. Seth and all of Seth's descendants and all, all, all of Adam's descendants, we, have all, we all bear the image of God, as I've just said. But there's something else as well, which is that we have also all inherited Adam's corrupt nature. Adam sinned, as we, as we saw a few weeks ago. He rebelled against God. And when he rebelled against God, his heart was turned. And it's not just Adam who was affected. As we saw at the time, all of his posterity were also affected. We were all counted as guilty in God's sight because of Adam's sin, but also our nature was changed. And that hostility to God, which we see, which we saw in Genesis 3, after Adam's uh, rebellion against God, that hostility towards God has come down to every one of us. And so David says in Psalm 51 and verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now this tells us about the very serious problem that every one of us in this room has. Each one of us is a rebel against God in our natural state. None of us wants God. Our hearts are turned away from him. We prefer idols to the living God. We prefer sin to obedience. This is why in our natural state, nobody believes in Christ. Everybody prefers to carry on going their own way rather than coming to Christ. And that's why for those of us who are saved... Our salvation has, must be because God decided to step in. God chose to save us. And brought, God brought us to himself. So what application can we make from that for ourselves? Well, first of all, if you are not yet a Christian, if you've not yet come to Christ for salvation, you at this point in time are a rebel against God. You hate God. You're an enemy of God. 
You deserve to be condemned. You deserve to go to hell. And it's vitally important that you get saved. Thanks be to God, God has provided a means whereby you can be saved through Jesus Christ who died on the cross in the place of sinners. But you must come to him. You must turn from your sins and you must trust him for salvation. And for those of us who are believers, the application is that we should give thanks to God. Do you believe you've been born again? Do you believe that you can see the signs of saving faith in your life? You've come to see the truth about Jesus, that he is the eternal son of God. You've come to repent of your sins. You've come to trust in Jesus as your savior. You can see your life changing. Well, give all the glory to God. Because you would never have made that choice of your own volition. It's only because God worked in you to give you that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give you that repentance. So that's the second thing I think we can see from this passage. Now the third thing is perhaps a bit more controversial and I know that there are some Christians who would take a different approach from myself and, a different, and apply a different interpretation uh, from myself but I'll lay before you what I consider to be um, the teaching on this point which is that the earth is young uh, it seems to me that that has to be the conclusion we come from this passage as I said I know that other Christians would take a different view but uh, I will just simply just lay before you what, what seems to me to be the reason um, which is that in this genealogy we're told the age of the father when he gives birth to the next generation. And so we're able to come to, we're able to say at what point after the creation of the world, the flood took place. So let's just follow it through. Verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Verse 6, when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Verse 9, when Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Verse 12, when Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Verse, uh, uh, verse 15, when Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Verse 18, when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Verse 25, when Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. And then verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. Now, I did a little calculation. I, I might have got it wrong in my, my, my Excel spreadsheet, but, but I, I think that comes to 1,056 years. Somebody can correct me if I got, if I, if my maths is wrong. And then if we go over to, um, uh, to, to, uh, to 
Genesis chapter 7 and verse 6, we read that uh, it says, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And then if we go over to, um, to chapter 11, you've got another genealogy uh, there. Um, and this is the, this is the sons of, of, of Noah. And again, you've got the ages of the different parents when they gave birth to the next generation, down to Abraham. And so, again, if my calculation is correct, that's 1,954 years from the creation of the world to the birth of Abraham. Now, once we get to Abraham, there's all sorts of other, there's other genealogies, but also all sorts of other cross-references in the later Jewish history to, to other figures as well. And it's fairly widely agreed that Abraham was born about 2,000 years before Christ. So this would imply that the world is around 6,000 years old. Now that would seem to be very, very shocking in the light of what the consensus that many would put forward, the scientific uh, views of many, but not all scientists. Um, there are some who have tried to harmonize the teaching of the Bible with, 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 with scientific evidence. I'm not going to go down there. I'm not a scientist myself. I'm simply presenting to you what seems to me to be the straightforward interpretation of Scripture. Um, now, if, if this is correct, then well, what difference does that make to us? Well, I think it does make a difference because if you think of the world as being just 6,000 years old, you think, well, that's not very long at all. And it makes you think, well, the idea of Jesus coming back very soon is not actually that surprising. I mean, if, if we were to believe what we're told, well, the earth has been here for millions and millions and millions, or growing, the universe has been here for millions and millions and millions, millions of years, and you think, well, probably it'll just carry on going for another millions and millions of years. But if, if this view that I've put forward before you this morning is correct, then, well, it's just been here six, around 6,000 years. And, and who knows when the Lord might come back? Who knows when it will end? It may well end very, very soon indeed. Well, let's go on to something perhaps a bit less controversial, and that, that is the, the fact that there is the theme of death in this genealogy. It's, it is quite remarkable how with each person, apart from Enoch, who will come to, it is, it is stated, he died, he died, he died, he died. They did live a long time, it's true. Um, just let's follow through. Verse, come back to Genesis 5 again. So, uh, verse 7, Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons. And, oh, sorry, missed out Adam. Um, uh, the days of Adam 
uh, after, first of all, after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. By the way, that sorts out that problem. People say, oh, where did, uh, where did Cain get his wife from? Well, the answer is Adam had other sons and daughters. It wasn't just that he had, he had Cain and Abel and, 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 and Seth. There were, other, there were other sons and daughters that he had. And of course, in the first generation, uh, the men will have had to have married their sisters, of course, and that would have been right. Um, but anyway, but then, so then all the days of the, that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Uh, verse 8, uh, or we'll read from verse 7, Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 10, Enoch lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 905 years, and he died. And so on. I won't go through them all. You see how each time we're told how long they lived, but then we're told that they died, apart from Enoch, who we'll come to in a moment. Why did they all die? Well, the answer is, of course, because of sin. As God had said to Adam, in the day you sin, you shall sh- the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Now, he died immediately spiritually, but then physical death came in afterwards. And, um, and, and um, as, as Paul says in, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, as in Adam all die so in Christ all shall be made alive now some people sort of try to say that's only talking about spiritual death but I think in the context of of the resurrection of the body that the apostle is talking about there it's clear that physical death came to man because of sin and uh it's true that um, we, say, well, we might say, well, why did they live for longer at this time? Well, I think the answer is because, um, number one, sin was perhaps growing. It wasn't fully developed this time. But number two, also, God was showing patience at this time. And uh, we, when we get to chapter 6, we read that God's, God, God's patience is starting to, if I may use this phrase, wear a bit thin. That's perhaps not the right expression to use. But verse 3 of chapter 6, it says, My spirit will not, shall not abide with man forever, for his flesh his days shall be 120 years. And you'll find that the lifespan after that gets shorter. And of course, when we get to Psalm 91, Psalm 90, excuse me, uh, we read in Psalm 90 that, that, that man's time is, is 70 years if, or perhaps 80 if, if they have strength. But all die with one exception, one or two exceptions as we'll see in a moment. And that because of sin. And that physical death 
is part of a wider death, which is of spiritual death, alienation from God. And the Bible warns us that all those who, and tells us that all those, all of us in a natural state, we are dead spiritually, as we've said a moment ago, and unless you get saved through Jesus Christ, you will spend all of eternity in eternal death. Jesus talked about that, didn't he? A death that never dies. Punishment that never comes to an end. And so it really is so important for us to, all of us, to come to Christ while we have the opportunity. And the only opportunity to be saved is while you're still alive on this earth. Some people try to make out that there's a, there's a, a chance after death to be saved. But there is no chance after death. Your only opportunity to be saved is now while you still have life. So if you're not yet, if you haven't yet come to Christ for salvation, ask him to save you quickly. Now, the fifth thing I'd like us to see from this passage today is that God wants us to walk with him. God wants us to have a relationship, a close relationship with him. We've got this very extraordinary figure who's mentioned here called Enoch. Now, he sort of stands out from the crowd. Uh, everybody else, I think we can assume, lived a sinful life. We certainly know that by chapter 6, there's a great deal of sin in the earth. And we've already seen in chapter 4 as well, the end of chapter 4, um, the, 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 the Lamech, the son of Cain, a different Lamech from the one that's in, in this later genealogy, who boasted about the fact that he was a murderer. Uh, but here you have this extraordinary figure called Enoch. And uh, we're told about him that, let's look at, let's read verses 21 to 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? It says there that he, wa he walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. And it seems as though something happened to him when Methuselah was born. We don't know what. But we do know from the book of Jude, you might want to just quickly look at that. It's back right back at the end of the Bible. Keep your finger here in Genesis 5, but just, just have a look. Uh, just before uh, the, the book of Revelation, 
the end of the Bible, you've got these very remarkable verses about Enoch. And Enoch preached against false prophets and false teachers. So Enoch, at Jude, Jude verse 14, page 1216, it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. To, con- to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of unrighteousness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Who is this Lord who is coming? Well, it's obviously Jesus. The Lord has revealed, the Lord God revealed to Enoch that the Lord Jesus was going to come. He's going to come and judge. And I think we can safely assume that if the Lord, if God revealed to Enoch that Jesus was going to come as the judge, the Lord also revealed to Enoch that Jesus was going to come as a saviour. Not, of course, in the detail that we know about. But he would have known there would have been a first coming. Where he would come and provide salvation. But then he'd come again to judge all the wicked. And Enoch, it seems, believed the message that he preached. He himself came to Christ. All those thousands of years ago, long before Jesus ever came into the world, he came to Christ and he trusted Jesus for salvation. His life was changed. And he didn't just, quotes, make a decision for Christ. That faith in Christ affected his whole life so that he maintained a close relationship with God. That surely is what it means to, to walk with God. It means that you, you know God. You're obedient to him. You have fellowship with him. You're close to him. And so Enoch had this day-by-day relationship with God. Knowing God, it seems he may have been on his own. There's no evidence that his wife believed or that his children believed. Well, one of his his ancestors, Noah, thankfully, he believed. But we don't know of many others who believed. But Enoch maintained this relationship with God for 300 years consistently walking with God. And then uh, we read that, uh, that he, uh, he, he was taken by the Lord. And, and in other words, he didn't die. 
the Lord uh, gave him this privilege of going straight into his presence without having to go through death. And the only other case recorded in scripture that I'm aware of is that of Elijah, who was taken up to heaven on the chariot. Everybody else has had to die, but this man uh, was spared that. Was that because he was without sin? No, can't have been. Because nobody is born without sin. Interesting, you know, the Roman Catholic Church talks about how Mary was taken up to heaven. The assumption of the blessed, so-called Blessed Virgin Mary, doctrine that the Catholic Church invented. But that's got no foundation at all. But they, they, the Catholic Church religion teaches, well, Mary didn't sin which also doesn't have foundation because she said that she rejoices in God her saviour. Uh, there's no basis in scripture for saying that Mary was taken up to heaven. But there is basis for saying that Enoch was. Not because he was perfect, but because he was a sinner saved by grace. And having been saved, he, can, he then lived a life of very close fellowship with God. Now there's another reference to Enoch which I'm sure many of you will be familiar with which is in Hebrews chapter 11. And verse 5. And if you want the reference page if you want to look at the reference it's page 1195. And the writer of Hebrews says by by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not, should not see death. So that's how we know when it says he was no more. He didn't physically die in the way that we die. And was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And that is a lesson for us all. And without faith it is impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And that he rewards those who seek him. God wants us to not only believe in his existence. But he wants us to believe that he rewards those who seek him. It's funny that a lot of Christians have a problem with the idea of God rewarding people. But there it is in Hebrews. God rewards those who seek him, and he wants us to reward. He wants us to believe that he rewards those who seek him. And Enoch believed that. And because he believed that, he maintained this very, very, very close relationship with God. And it's interesting how this word walk is used so often in the Bible. I mean, I did a search on my concordance on the word walk. Whew. I had so many references I thought I can't bring them all to you because it's just too many. Lots in the Old Testament and lots in the New Testament. In fact, when the Bible talks about living a life of obedience, time and time again it uses the word walk. And that's got this idea of a consistent pattern, consistently living a certain way, consistently doing the right thing. You know, walking is one of those things, you, you know, you just step, 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 step. You know, 
It's just, you have to, you just consistently walk over a period of time. And if you walk over a long period, you, you get somewhere, don't you? And, and we are, as Christians, we are to walk the walk, to walk with God, and to walk that life of obedience. I'll just give you a selection of the many, many references I could give you. Um, Romans 6, verse 4. It, what I do love about the ESV is that it actually does literally translate the word walk, whereas some of the other translations sort of say live or whatever. But it does actually give us the, the, the literal translation of, of the... Of the, um, of the Greek. Um, so, Romans 6, verse 4, We were buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Or Romans 13 and verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Or Galatians chapter, uh, chapter 5 and verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are God's, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, so that's just the selections. Many more references I could give you. Well, what's the application for us? Well, the application for us from Enoch is that we should walk with God closely. We should have that relationship with God. God is looking for us to do that. And he will reward us if we do so. And let me ask you this. Let me ask you this question. What is your relationship with God like? Are you, am I, walking with God? It's all very well to say, well, I, I made a prayer of commitment 25 years ago. Great. But are you walking with God today? That's the question. Do you know the Lord today? Did you have a prayer time this morning? That's the question. Are you examining your own heart before the Lord? Are you turning away from sin? Or is sin, has sin found a lodging in your, in your heart? Are there sins that are tolerated in you? We're to walk, one another reference, we're to walk in the light as God is in the light. We're to get rid of sin, get rid of pretense before God, and to live that consistent Christian life. And so uh, let us take, perhaps be challenged by Enoch, 
but also encouraged by him. Enoch was commended by God. Enoch pleased God. Do you want God to say to you on that day, well done, good and faithful servant, the Lord to commend you. You did well. You lived your life well. Well, walk with him. Keep that close relationship with him. Well, you say, what must I do? Well, first thing, of course, is to come to Christ for salvation. You can't walk with the Lord if you're not saved. You can't maintain a relationship that doesn't exist. So the first thing is to come to Christ as a sinner and ask him to save you, ask him to give you eternal life. But then we need to do those things which I'm sure many of us are aware of. Maintain your own personal relationship with the Lord. Have a constantly draw near to him in prayer. Read your Bible. Do other things to feed your soul, like reading Christian, good Christian books or, or listening to sermons. Take the public means of grace. Be at meetings of the church, not just once on a week on a Sunday morning, but come back Sunday evening, come back midweek. Join in other prayer times if you can as well with, with the church and with other members of the church so that we can grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. And then another thing that's very important is that we carefully examine our consciences. We don't just assume, well, everything in my life is all right. Examine your heart. Turn the spotlight on your heart. And, and say to the Lord, search me, O God, and see if there is some wicked way in me. Ask him to reveal your sin to you. And as soon as you become aware of sin, repent. Keep short accounts. Don't just sort of say, oh, well, I'll pray about it one day. I'll get right with the Lord one day. No, no, no. As soon as you know you've sinned, go to him quickly. You might say, oh, it's too late for me. I've been a Christian for 35 years now. And I haven't been walking with God all these years. Well, start now. Maybe you've just got two, one or two years left before you die, as far as you know. You don't know. Well, let those last years be glorious. Wonderful years. Go off to glory in triumph rather than sneaking into heaven through the back door, as it were. You might have a rich welcome, the scripture says, into eternal habitations. So may the Lord bless his word to us and may we, may we um, learn from this amazing man, Enoch, who walked with God.